Moses is a strong name. If I close my eyes, I can see Charlton Heston raising his staff to the sky and walls of water miraculously rise from the floor of the Red Sea. And if I let my mind wander, I can feel the yellow church pew cushions where I sat and learn to associate the name of Moses with God's power, authority, and most of all, Exodus. Moses is a unique name to my white European ears, but it's pretty common in Africa. I might picture 40 days and nights wandering in the desert or the handwriting of God on those stone tablets or the burning bush, all of this rich and colorful story. But Moses is, I don't know, it's probably like James or John is for a lot of us. It's actually a pretty common name. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Moses, Moses Kushaba. Moses grew up in Uganda and has a rich and colorful story of his own. So we had a civil war during that time when I was born, and it was also a rainy season. And so my family was fleeing, going, you know, to an, another area. And so they didn't know what to do because all the valleys were flooded. So what they did, they made a basket, put me in the basket and pushed me and um, water as they were they were crossing there. So that's how they named me Moses. We talk about Ibrahim Kendi's how to be anti-racist and how hard it is to actually practice this. Being anti-racist, according to Kendi, doesn't come naturally. It's impossible to be human and not be racist. And According to him and others that talk about this, the trap that we fall into is believing that the goal is to somehow deny our racism, when in fact, hiding it from ourselves and others is by definition hiding our most human and imperfect parts while pretending we don't have it. So of course it spreads unchecked, just like coronavirus is spreading unchecked in many parts of the US. So in this episode, Moses and I practice what I think Kendi and his how to be anti-racist work is inviting us to do, actually naming racist ideas we have struggled with. I think there has always been this inherent fear of the angry black man. Naming racist ideas we have struggled with. In a place that matters, like in front of other people where you have something to lose. <laughs> I hope it inspires you to speak honestly to others about race, racist ideas that you, yes, you actually have. I'll admit I was a bit nervous about this, but it's it's exhilarating to think of you and Kendi and others who are providing leadership, important spiritual leadership on this with me, that you're out there doing this with me. So yeah, I'm counting on you. And I'm ready and I hope you're ready. If we're going to the River Jordan, we are going to go deep. Full immersion. The only reason I know Moses is because he fled Uganda in the 2000s. He experienced violence in his family. His grandfather was killed by one of the regimes there. Moses was eventually granted asylum. But his story takes a few twists and turns. And I want to prepare you and ask you to be open to the whole story to Moses. 
Surviving traumatic events takes time to process and heal, and I'm sure some of these chapters that we'll hear today Moses talk about are still being written. So I ask for your openness. You'll hear Moses speak about some of this, but other parts I've gathered and gleaned from public reporting about his story, it's not something he really wanted to rehash. Being gay in Uganda is dangerous. Now, Moses was from a wealthy family, but his parents, both of them, died from HIV AIDS when he was just a teenager. And as the oldest of six siblings, a lot of responsibility fell on Moses. If I can help raise my siblings so that we actually don't die, um, yeah. In order to not be exiled from his family and get kicked out of school, he hid his sexual identity and gave in to pressure to be married and look normal. He had children. Keep in mind, this was during a time where the regime in Uganda was passing bills, literally passing bills that criminalized homosexuality, but called for the punishment of that crime to be death. And to this day, Uganda is still not a safe place for gay people. Hunting down gay people was really happening in Uganda when Moses was outed on national television and accused of being a dangerous predator. This accusation that Moses experienced is not a new one. It's been recycled over and over again. The idea that gay people harm children somehow more than straight people. It's one of the most common homophobic legends used to justify violence against gay, lesbian, trans, queer, and intersex people. There's no factual basis for this. It's homophobia and paranoia. But a tabloid in Uganda ran a front page story with Moses' picture, telling others he was a monster. To some people in the LGBTQI community in the US, Moses became an icon of courage, but I don't think he sees himself as a hero at all. People close to Moses were forced to share what they knew about him when the story ran in the tabloids. They were forced to take sides. It was so ironic because I was receiving praise from here. People were like, oh my God, you know, you're a courageous person. Oh my God, thank you for putting this to light. Oh, thank you for the good work. You're helping people. On the other side of the world, it was like, how dare you? How dare you do this to us? How dare you put us through this? How dare you put your family through this? People openly talked about all of his sexual experiences since he was a boy. So, okay, just try to imagine that for a moment and how you feel in that position. Front page news, all of your sexual experiences. They gossiped about this umbrolio of sex that he and another boy inaugurated at his boarding school. So Moses got out in front of that story and he told a lot of details about his earliest sexual experiences. Things that a straight person would never have to share with anyone. And he told this to a US reporter. If Moses was being pushed out of the closet, he was not just going to stumble out. It was like 
I don't know, a bit of jujitsu. He kind of said, if you're pushing fire at me, I'm going to use it to blast off. Moses is a pretty smart guy. He made friends in Washington, D.C. He had been denied asylum at first, but he appealed and won his asylum and joined the U.S. Army as a medic. One drill instructor confronted him for smiling and laughing through the grueling workouts. People ask me about my experience in Iraq. I'm like, I think that was the best time of my life. Moses kept smiling. After his tour in Iraq, Moses studied social work and is now finishing his PhD in psychology. He's been a healer and psychotherapist for many years, and I hope you'll learn something from our attempt to bring knowledge as healers of the mind and heart together in the messy work of anti-racism. If we stop putting in our own input and injecting our own feelings and our own um, theories, then we will let this, the healing process actually flow. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology, psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. My guest is Moses Kushaba, and it's a real pleasure to have you here, Moses. We are um, going to be talking about race, racism, um, uh, the immigrant story in the United States, your story. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Keith. You're welcome. Um, I, I've gotten the, I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over the last few months, um, working together professionally in our practice of uh, psychotherapy and uh and so you are a clinical social worker and you're also um, pursuing your clinical um, degree in psych- psychology. So you're a registered psychologist. Um, and, you know, I wanted to say first off that you know, how, how thrilled I am and my, my, uh, my kids and my family get a chuckle out of this. I, whenever your name comes up on my phone, I, I, I say to them, Look, Moses is calling. <laughs> I just, I just get a thrill of saying, like, I've got to, everyone, I got to talk to Moses right now. I'm sorry. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. It's such a, that such, name is powerful in its way. It really, it is for me, yeah. and and for someone with my background, uh, the name of Moses it carries uh, tremendous uh, authority. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And actually, they gave me that name. It, it was. Purposeful. It wasn't just that. Oh, we're just giving this guy the word Moses. So just a little bit, you know, briefly the background of Moses. So we had a civil war during that time when I was born, and it was also a rainy season. And so my family was fleeing, going, you know, to an, another area. And so they didn't know what to do because all the valleys were flooded. So what they did, they made a basket, put me in the basket and pushed me on, on water as they were, they were crossing there. So that's how they named me Moses. So I mean, that is the real deal. That's, that is Moses. That's <laughs> uh, really phenomenal. You're raised in Uganda. Tell me what it was like um, living in Uganda. Today, we're going to talk about Ibrahim Kendi. We're going to talk about anti-racism. And I can't wait to, to do this with you. It's exciting to talk about these topics. They're so, um, 
I want to say that they're, they're so interesting and they, I want to bring this conversation forward for everyone because I think it can be invigorating to talk about these things. It doesn't have to be stressful. It doesn't have to be on tiptoes and on, um, you know, on eggshells that we walk around these issues. We can talk about them and laugh about them and we can cry about them and, <laughs> and so forth. So I'm thrilled to do this. Um, tell me about um, your story in Uganda uh, coming from Uganda and what it was like coming to to the United States. I know you had a um, a tour in Iraq as an army medic, and so there's a lot to get through here. Um, yes. How did this all start off? Yeah, so um, I, you know, growing up, I never ever dreamed of joining the military. That was never me. That you know, even now, people look at me and they're like. You join the military, you, 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 you don't seem to be that person who can actually be in the military. And I'm like, yeah, I, you're right. But things change. Um, yeah, things change. I, I, don't, I never thought I would have that kind of strength, that mental um, agility to just be in the military. Because I always looked at the military in my country and I was like, this is not my thing, you know. Um, and the fact that um, in 1970, 79, 78, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather was killed by Idi Amin, the president, by that time. Um, and so I never had any desire to join the military. It was just awful. Um, but... You know, losing my parents at uh, an early age and, and struggling, you know, with school and all that, um, and struggling with that identity, trying to figure out who I was, I, I you know, that came to that point where I felt like I wasn't me. Um, so when I was in, so along the way, people came in my life and helped me. Um, um, my dad's friends um, came along and helped me with school and I'm, I will forever be grateful for that. Um, but when I, I finished college, I was given an opportunity to teach at the university where I graduated. And, um, and I, there was always that constant pressure of, oh, you have to get married, or you have to do this, and you know that rumor of, oh, um, he's gay. We started coming up, and so I had to get married, and we had to do all these weddings and all that stuff, and it it, it was a bad a bad period, um, and so. That was during the wars in Iraq. So the Department of Defense was hiring people from English-speaking countries. And so I was like, you know what? Yeah, maybe this would be a chance for me to get out of the country. Wow, wow. So, so it yeah, was it, literally it was the, the outreach, if you want to call it, of the, of the uh, recruiting office of the U.S. Army in Uganda that, that was, was, spoke to you and, and, and you saw that as an opportunity? I, I, yes, I, I mean, they, yeah, they, they were recruiting and I, I felt it was an opportunity to just get out and just have some fresh air. Yeah. Just 
just yeah. to breathe. And so when uh, people ask me about my experience in Iraq, I'm like, I think that was the best time of my life. Wow. It was, it represented so much for you, right? To, it to, represented so much for me. Right, right. Um, yes, and it represented so much for me. You lived during a civil war in Uganda um, and, and you experienced the effects of violence, uh, I imagine, and also the, the, the effects, the devastating effects of AIDS, HIV and AIDS. Yes. In, in Africa, but in Uganda, um, your parents died from HIV, AIDS. Yes. What was that like? How old were you? Um, so um, this was the early, you know, HIV AIDS was really rampant in Uganda in the, you know, mid 80s, um, late 80s and early 90s. It was really bad. Um, there was no medication. People were just dying like dogs. Um, but then the government had came up with this strategy um, this information communication uh, education strategy of targeting youth, targeting kids in schools, boarding schools. I think it was it was great. So basically, um, and, and more, more kids go to boarding school. So I grew up in boarding school. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you had this education, you know, in, in, in the schools. They used, we used to do plays and, you know, j- just to get that understanding of what the gravity of this, this pandemic and then take that information, first of all, to help ourselves as kids growing up be informed so that we don't make any, you know, crazy decisions, but also take that back to our communities, back to our parents. So that strategy worked well. So I was really so involved in the plays, in dramas and all that stuff at school. I I was, Mm. yeah. Well, and it's just dawned on me when my parents happened to be victims. Mm. I, I think that that's what kind of killed me. Yeah, yeah, it must have had a devastating impact on you. Yes, yeah. So then I was like, okay, what is it that I can do to at least help kids? Um, so um, basically, my dad died when I was finishing elementary school, and then my mom died when I was in junior school. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in my third year of junior school, so I decided. I needed the skills to help kids, my age, kids, um, to kind of help them not fall into their parents' traps. Because you had this pandemic wiping away all middle-aged adults, literally all young and middle-aged adults all were going and leaving these kids behind to their grandparents. Right. And, yeah. and we think that, you know, obviously we, we are alarmed and concerned about coronavirus pandemic globally and also here in our country. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't compare to the to the kind of devastation of HIV AIDS. Right. And we forget also that that it, that it's a virus as unpredictable and as deadly. I mean, there, there are different levels of mortality, obviously, but right. how devastating it was just to a whole generation of people. And, and then to the, add to the fact that many my understanding of um, the politics involved in a lot of African, not all, but 
many African or some African countries where uh, similar to how today there's misinformation and there's scapegoating, blaming people who are trying, who are trying to get information out about the virus, blaming them, uh, making up rumors that they're causing it and um, persecuting in fact. Yes. Um, So it, it, it sounds like you came out of this experience of tragedy and said, I'm, I, I need and I want to. It sounds like it was part of the fabric of who you were to want to do more for others. Yes, I, I just wanted my 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 hope was if I can help one person, but also more importantly, as the firstborn in our family were six in our family, if I can be an example, if I can help raise my siblings so that we actually don't die. Um yeah, I think that was my goal. And it, it's it's pretty big goal to have, right? When we think about what, what we ask, my wife is a, a early elementary education. You know, we have young kids and we ask our children, what, what do they want to do when they grow right. up? What do they want to be? And you're saying, one of my goals was to survive and not, and make sure my family survived. Yes, yes. Um, and... <laughs> And, and, and I all kept asking myself, what is it that I can do? What kind of skills? So when back home in the education system, we tend to choose our careers when we are finishing um, junior high school. So when you go to high school, you at least know what you want to be. And so I decided I want to be a social worker when I was in high school. And so I did courses specifically for that. So when I graduated high school, I went to do social work. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the, you know, there's a, there's a chapter in your, in your story about immigrating Mm. to the United States where um, you began to speak out against the horrific persecution in the yes. against the LGBTQ community in Uganda. Yes. And then you were targeted viciously, publicly, ruthlessly, and um, uh, slandered publicly. Yes. For being outspoken. What was that like? So, uh, so I, I leave uh, Uganda and go to Iraq. And um, so during that time we had um, white evangelicals, you won't believe this, white evangelicals from here, United States, going to Uganda, going and going to our Congress and influencing those people to start putting laws on the books that were anti, you know, anti-homosexuality. Right. So those bills, so basically, it, it, of, of course that, um, uh, their teachings um, landed on this, this soft ground because mm. our cultures, uh, much as they never wanted to talk about, in, in our culture, people never talked about stuff like this. People were there, they see them, but it was not like, oh my God, I have never seen this. No, <laughs> it was there, people were there and they would see them, but okay. But because... Um, again, we go back to um, colonialism. We were colonized. And um, when our constitutions were being drafted, these are some of the laws that were put 
in our constitution. Right. So we already had this stuff in there, in our yeah. laws, but this was just kind of fuel that. There, there was a there was a, a a system. We're going to talk about systematic racism, but you're yes. talking colonialism encoded, codified a way of oppressing people and codifying um, racist ideas. Yes, uh, including and and also <laughs> hateful uh, ideas, anti-gay ideas, and suppressing the rights of people. Yes. So, so basically, these guys came over in 2007, 2008. And so I was like, you know what, now I, I need to go. So I left, went to um, Iraq. I come back. It was really bad. People were being outed. They were being put in the newspapers. I mean, it, it was horrible. It was a horrible situation. And so I was like, I really can't. I, I can't be in this country. Right. So I migrated here. And then... I was out kind of publicly on national television. And I think that is, yeah, that made it worse. Um, So, of course, I was in the newspapers. I mean, they said horrible stuff about me. Um, It was a very tough situation. It was a very... What would you say to somebody who's, in that situation here, they may be in a, in a, because this is, I think we have to say that this is not something that has gone away, even though it, it has gotten better. Life is better here. It, it, it has not gone away. It has not gone away. It was so ironic because I was receiving praise from here. People were like, oh my God, you know, you're a courageous person. Oh my God, thank you for putting this to light. Oh, thank you for the good work. You're helping people. On the other side of the world, it was like, how dare you? How dare you do this to us? How dare you put us through this? How dare you put your family through this? So it was horrible. And so I was like, okay, I, I really can't. I, I, I don't know. But um, part of me was like, okay, you are in a space where you can be yourself. You are in a place where you can thrive. You are in a space where no one from there is just going to come here and grab you and drag you and take you back. So I was like, you know what? I can cut off communication. I don't have to talk to anyone. I don't have to do anything and I'll be fine. But then, of course, I always feared for my family. My wife was there. My kids were there. And so I was like, okay, what is going to happen to them? So I, I, I think I was just torn in between, do I keep communicating? Do I just cut off the communication, you know? Um, but I, I was fortunate. I was fortunate. Uh, my immediate family, my wife um, stayed. She was like, I'm not going anywhere. My, my siblings were like, you know, this is our brother. You know, I, we don't think he's different from who he's always been. He's always been our rock. And so yeah, that kept me going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a lot we could talk about. I think it speaks to people who are struggling now and it speaks to people who are, who are um, you know, looking to learn from 
mm. others, people, young people who are, um, you know, thankfully having the the opportunity to see that there are 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 they have the freedom to to really find out who they are. Yes, um, and and people I think can learn from others who have come from places and come from maybe more culturally restrictive places where they have suffered or have had to uh, eliminate or hide parts of who they are. Mm. And so hopefully this can be encouraging to people in that, in that regard. Yeah. I I think part of our role as, as you know, in, in my case, part of my role, I think just speaking out, if I can, help one person and show them that, hey, you being outed or going through some kind of traumatic situations, um, that's not the end of, of it all. You can, you know, still, you know, believe in yourself. And at one point, you'll come back um, on the other side as, as triumphant. Right. So it's not all over. Right, no. right. Yeah. It, it's so common, as we know in this work, to, that people who feel traumatized or victimized or feel shamed, yeah. especially publicly shamed, those who are um, shamed or feel humiliated and, and that they don't belong to the people yeah. um, that they're with, um, it's so easy for them to think that they're the only ones. It's like the scarlet letter um, and people, you know, end up thinking that everyone must know that they're bad. And, you know, this is, this is, it's not true that there, there's, thankfully there's ways now for people to see these conversations, to know that you're not alone. And that um, if you're going through something, chances are there are other people out there that know what that's like and that there's, there's, there's a story to be written that's waiting. And, and, Absolutely. and, and you have really, I think Moses have that, um, that you're bringing that gift, I think, because of your story and what you're doing, what you've done with your life. Um, I want to talk about Ibrahim Kendi. Uh, it's it's something I think a lot of people are talking about. I think it's time, it's past time that people are talking about racism and how to be anti-racist. That's his book, How to Be Anti-Racist. Um, he also has the book Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which is eye-opening. Um, it's it's um, tragically, it's it, to me, it's, it reads like a tragedy, uh, it, you know, looking at this uh, catalog of things. And you mentioned colonialism and, you, you know, there's, so there's, it's, it's, it's so helpful to have this work by Kendi out there. And I want to talk about anti-racism. One of his ideas is um, that he's really, I think he's calling out people saying, they, you know, people who, who hide behind this idea of saying that they're not a racist, Mm. Well, um, you know, somebody says Black Lives Matter, and the other person says, "Well, all lives matter." Right. And then, and then the person, you know, the Black Lives Matter person, says, "Well, that's racist." And then the the, the All Lives Matter person says, "I'm not racist. I mm. love people of color. I I I empathize with their story and with their pain. I'm not racist. All lives matter." And so, Kendi, it seems to me, and I, and you know, I just want to point out, we're not experts on. Uh, anti-racism. We are experts at helping people change behavior. So, right. I think this has a very this 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 has an intersection here. The psychology of this and and some of the work that Kendi's doing. Um, you know, I I understand that it's challenging. And, and as a as a white person who 
would consider myself anti-racist, I feel very humbled by, by what he's saying. Very, very humbled, in fact. And, and I wanted to talk about how hard this is, how hard it is to actually be anti-racist, how vulnerable it is. Um, I would like to sit here and say, you know, you know, Moses, I'm trained as a social worker. I've worked around uh, uh, in, in, in diverse communities my entire life. Mm. I would like to just simply say I'm not racist and then um, just have lunch and talk about football or something. Right. <laughs> and in fact, if I, if I follow this trail and what, what Kendi is asking us to do is say, wait a minute, no, it's not possible to be human and not be racist. It's not possible, he says. You have to find, like, like when you, you know, alcoholism, you know, we, people, like very famously, we know in treatment of alcoholism, the beginning of that treatment is just acknowledging that you acknowledgement. drink too much. Yeah. Just, just acknowledge it. You don't even have to do anything. Just say, I, I, I drink too much. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So, so in any way, to me, I want to, I want to just come out and say, I am racist. I do have racist thoughts, and I, and I, and I, that I struggle with, and and I think we all should struggle with finding those thoughts and making sure they don't become beliefs. Absolutely, absolutely, and uh, everybody, everybody, everybody is racist in their own way, and I. <laughs> When I was thinking about that, I was like, okay, I don't want people listening to this, coming up and saying, oh, these mental health professionals are saying they are racist. Who can we go? Who can go to or trust? No, I I think it's a human instinct. I think we are all human beings and um, we we all breathe. And um, that is, is natural. And I think it's, it's, it's normal now. It's been normalized based on our experiences. Um, just like I told you about, about my African culture, you know, Angkori culture. That was a long time ago, long time ago. So now there are all these other racist things going on, you know, anti-homosexuality and all that stuff. It's there. People will always be fighting. Um, but of course, when you come here, and there is also that bit of Africans who are immigrants and African-Americans. So you come here, the way white people or African-Americans, everybody who sees us, they see us differently. I have, <laughs> when I am with my African-American friends and we meet, we've done this experience. We meet a white person. Once they hear my accent, the way they will treat me will be completely different from how they treat the other person. Say more about that. Yeah, there is no fear with me because I am not looking for anything. I am not, um, maybe I never suffered in on their hands. Mm. So there is mm. nothing to worry about. Mm. With the other person, they see this angry person. So black Americans carry, you're saying, it sounds like it's, it's just common knowledge that, that a, to be African, to actually have, to be identified as African, right, with an accent, it, right. it, it sort of gives you a pass with white it, people? Yes, it gives, a, it gives us a pass because we are not looked at as, as any threat. Mm. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a threat. I mean, um, and I want to say what I appreciate, like, I think, cause you know, I think to go back to something earlier, I said about walking on eggshells around this, right, right. That, that we can talk about this in, in ways that we can laugh about this, but obviously there are, this is not a laughing matter, right? It is like, it, I, I, it, I, is, I, it is not a laughing matter, but also we need some, some humor in it as we are talking about it, um, as we are acknowledging it. We need some humor, but also, of course, with some level of seriousness when we are talking about it. Why um, is that so important, do you think? Why, why do we need the humor also? Because everything has been so bad. Mm. Everything has been so bad. You don't want to laugh. You'd, when you laugh at something, oh, my God, how dare you laugh? And, and I'll just give you one example. Um, <clears throat> I joined the military. And I go to the military, basic training. I, I am a happy person. Overall, I am a happy person. So I get there and day one, they are getting us to do exercises. They are, I mean, it was just horrible. They are yelling at us. And I mean, so all that. I was smiling. I was laughing. I was <laughs> so, so my, my sergeant comes to me and he's like, why are you laughing? Is, is, is this something to be laughed? I'm like, you know what? The day I, if I stopped laughing, you would be running away. And, and so in order to make myself get through this, I need some humor. I need some laughter. I need to look at this as something that, you know what? This is something, one thing that I really need to go through in life and I will be fine. Did he leave you alone after that? He left me alone. They, so, so they ended up calling me Smiley. Yeah, that was my nickname. And that helped me go through basic training. I could think of far worse nicknames that... <laughs> 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 that's not bad. If you if you get out of basic training with the, with the, with that nickname, that's not too bad. It, it um, wasn't it wasn't too bad, but there was nothing they could they could do about it. And people were crying. People were felt like well, they were suffering. It was the end of their life. No, with me, that was not the attitude. Right. So we need to come to this with not that. Because if that angry person continues to be an angry person, how are we going to approach them? Right. It starts with us. Right? It, starts it starts with, with us. us. Yeah. I am not going to be angry. I, I, I need this person to come to me looking at someone who has a sense of, oh, this person is, is not mad. I right. thought he was mad about me, but he's willing to listen. He's willing to sit there and make jokes and listen and talk about this stuff. Oh, okay. I think I can trust this person. Right. And it's it, it strike, you know, one of the things we know from listening hours and hours and hours in our, in our, in our work that we do, right? Mm. Really, really we're, we're listeners, right? That is our work as healers. And we listen. Yeah. And we're listeners. We, we get to know more than anyone else. I mean, I think we have this privilege. I, I want to say it's, it's sort of like we're priests. I mean, it used to be, really used to be the priests and, and still is clergy are the listeners as well. They hear people's confessions. They hear the deepest, darkest, and 
uh, most difficult parts of the of the soul. Yeah, and and we know from all of that listening that when you hear, even if you're sitting across from someone who is an oppressor, mm. and is someone who is who is in other people's eyes and maybe their own eyes, they are evil or they embody evil power. Somehow they have power and authority and they're using it to hurt people. When you listen to the, their story, if you yes. can have the safety, first of all, and then the courage to be able to hear their story, you will find deep, deep pain in everyone and especially yes. people who are, who are the perpetrators. Um, yes. Um, that this, as we know, is you know the cycle of violence. It does. It doesn't just get cooked up out of nothing. It's it's because of violence that happened to them. And absolutely, tra- trauma. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if you know this story, but behind me, I have Bob Ross. I have the bobblehead. I have a couple bobbleheads, um, mm. and one of them is Bob Ross. You're listening to the Soul of Life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week, I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you. And please, share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Let me know who you are. And he is uh, my son, who's a teenager, just loves Bob Ross, as a lot of people do. It's sort of a, it's almost like a, uh, it's like a cult thing. That's like people follow the painter Bob Ross. And, uh, and he was on, my, my father used to turn Bob Ross on um, PBS, public television in the 80s when I was growing up. And Saturday mornings, we would, we would uh, watch Bob Ross. Um, have a, a very clear memory I have with my dad. And uh, so he's still popular. My son loves him. And I didn't know this until recently that Bob Ross was a drill instructor in the Air Force. Wow. And, and, and when you see this man, you see this man smiling and, and his whole affect, there's almost like a halo around him in his, in his artistic life. And because he literally just embodies this joy. And he, he said part of his story and, uh, and I'll put the link up if people are interested to this, uh, because there was a, there was an, I think it was an NPR story on, on him. Um, he, he, when he came out of the military, he said, I'm never going to raise my voice in anger again. Mm. Mm. And, and, and then, you know, so it, he found a way he found, he used art as a tool. Everyone needs a tool. Everyone needs some way. Yes. To, you know, we need something where our mind is meant to, to not be alone. We need something, some tool or other people to, to deal with that anger. It's not meant to be kept. And, and, and that's, what, that's what we offer as mental health professionals. Um, right. How are we able to create a safe space for these people who, have, who, who feel that no one has ever listened to them? Yeah. Right. How do we create that space that this person is going to feel comfortable and be vulnerable right. in this space? Right. Well, speaking of vulnerability, I, I want to I try to create this space um, between you and I, but, but also because obviously people are listening to this, a, a large number of people may be listening to this. And I want to create the space. I want to I go back to Kendi's um, anti-racism mm. um, thinking in his, in his training, his teaching about this, because I think it requires a little bit of 
practice. And so I want to practice it with, here with you, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to I follow up and say, because I did mention, uh, you know, I do have racist thoughts. And I want to I say what that is, what they have been specifically. And, and I want to also say that these are thoughts that I, this is not easy to say. Mm. Um, this is not something I would say without the context of this conversation to somebody because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it can be easily misunderstood. So it is vulnerable. Mm. And, but I want to take that risk in this conversation because I think that's, that's what re- is required of us. And Kendi talks about this idea of confession. Um, and those, peop- those people who have uh, a religious uh, experience or uh, with the, the practice of confession realize how powerful mm. it is to, to be able to confess um, things that are not right, are not whole. Mm. And so, so one of the thoughts, and in, in I cannot remember, this is, this is a tragic thing in and of itself, I, because I cannot remember which black teenager was shot by police running away. There was, there have been so many. Mm, mm. And I actually had this thought um, and I couldn't remember. So I tried to look up uh, some of the details of that case mm. and the, the Google results for, if you put in black unarmed teacher, uh, teenager shot running from police, if you put that phrase into Google, you will get pages of mm. news, unique news story, news stories. So anyway, that's aside. That's just going to take a breath about that. That is, um, a, that's in and of itself, you know, it's worth pausing there. But so one of these cases, I cannot remember which one. Um, mm. my, the first thought that I had, Moses, was why would you be so stupid to run away from police mm. when they're telling you to stop? You know, and I, and I, I don't think I, I'd like to think that I, I had the thought that this person did not deserve to be shot by the police and, and mm. killed. But I have to admit that it, it, it bordered on like, well, it wasn't his fault, mm. you know? And so, um, you know, I didn't, ho- I don't hold on to that belief. I do not believe it is, it is uh, the, uh, the, the fault of somebody, uh, you know, that the police have to take responsibility for their training and the way they're responding. But so I want to just say that, um, that, that that was something I had to, had to name myself and say, that is a racist thought that this person who is black, why would they, why would they be so stupid and, and run from the police? And when I had a guest on the soul of life show a previous episode, he um, is a black man and he described how his family and I don't need to say that that he is an educated black man. I do not need to say that, right? But again, a racist idea, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Another racist idea. But yeah. he said, I never knew this about him. I would have thought, oh, well, be, because you are so educated and you are so successful and you are uh, economically in a position of uh, privilege, that he would not have to deal with fearing the police. And he said, in fact... In my family, because we've been so harassed by the police, his children have have been subject to. In fact, there's litigation around a, a, an arrest uh, mm. that was made unwarranted by by his family. He he described uh, routine traffic stop type of thing, harassed by the police. He said, "There's no reason for us to have any business with the police if we can help it." Mm. Mm. And so it really, I I wasn't able 
to make the, that distinction when I, you know, and so th- this is what happens. I guess I, I wonder what your reaction is and <laughs> uh, where that lands yeah. for you. African-Americans, of course, always have this growing up. They have always been taught. Um, they have that experience of slavery. And so um, they have always known it's submission, it's this, you need to do this, you need to do this. I don't know what white people have always told the, their kids, like growing up. I, I, I don't know, you know, their story. But of course, there is that fear, you know, of, of, of this white person thinking, okay, what I did what my great-great-grandparents did to these Black people, maybe there is some kind of revenge. And these are the automatic thoughts that we get, that we have, everybody. Well, and, and, and even if the, the, the automatic thought is something along the lines, I, I read a book called uh, The Sports Gene. Mm. And I, I won't get into this here. I hope to have this guest on the show um, the author of the sports gene, because he talks about scientifically genetic differences in, in, in race. Of course, there's genetic differences in race. Yeah. But even if you have the thought that this black man is more violent because black people are more violent, black men are more violent, wake up. Yes. And, and see it as a racist thought and ask yourself, why do you right. have that thought? Yes. Why? Yes. Why? We need to ask ourselves, of course, why? But then there is this, hey, that submission and stupidity in, in that case, that those automatic thoughts could be from our history. Right. The, the, That's right. These are the inherent expectations that this person has to submit authority without question. Or face the consequences. And so do I judge you? Absolutely not. Can other people judge you? Absolutely yes, if they listen to what, you know, what, what you said. But I think my case, when it comes to that question of judgment, I would say, no, I actually don't judge you, but applaud you for your willingness to be vulnerable and share your story. But then, okay, moving forward, what do we have to do? Right. Because it's not going to change like instantly. Yeah, you're not going to change. Just like those automatic thoughts come because of our experiences, we have to go back and unlearn these behaviors, unlearn these, reteach ourselves to be able to acknowledge our thoughts and think about our thoughts. Right. And you're reminding me of such an important thing here, the next step, right? Because it's wonderful if, if, if people can have conversations and they stop. Um, Barack Obama famously, I can't even remember what it was, but uh, he got into the, this argument like in the first week with Louis Henry Gates. Mm. Um, I forget what that was. That was about the police. Uh, the police had, had, um, uh, had either cite, given a citation to Henry Louis Gates um, and because he he was he was maybe yelling at them or something, I don't want to speak out of school about that case. But anyway, Barack Obama 
said something publicly like, well, he was similar to what I said, like, well, why would you do something so stupid? Like to the police, like, why would you, why would you um, provoke the police like that? And it caused a big stir and he invited uh, Henry Louis Gates to the white house. They had a beer on the, on the South lawn or something like that. Um, But conversation, you know, we are at a point right now and Kendi makes this very clear black lives matter Mm. makes this very clear. We are at a point where nice conversations like this yes. are not enough and they are not fair. It's not fair to simply say, well, we had a nice conversation. I feel better now. I don't, I don't hate you. We don't hate each other. And now I'm going to go to my white uh, privileged um, right. world and you are going to your world where you exist outside of that privilege in some way. And I'm not going to do anything about changing that. Right. And that's why every time there is tension and we show how our feelings are, everybody runs back to their hiding places mm-hmm. where they feel safe. Right. Yeah. It, it's who, who would want to be in this kind of confrontational situation at all times? Right. It's understandable why we retreat right to our, yeah, to our safe retreat. places. Cause it is, it is, I think it is very unnatural to be anti-racist personally. When I read this book as a therapist, mm. I, I said to myself, yeah, I, I get it. I understand why it is so hard. And I think we have to begin understanding. I'm, I'm not saying we have to give passes to people and say, it's so hard. So don't, don't worry about it. No, it's so hard. Meaning then we need more support. Yes. And we need more eyeballs. We need yes. more Ears. We need um, more energy in this because it is a heavy lift to go into the middle. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, rather just to get out of the middle. Um, Kendi is, is kind of saying, look, the middle saying that you're just not racist. Like, well, uh, I'm not racist because I, you know, whatever. He's saying, no, that's not, that's not okay. You've got to get out of that, that, that middling kind of nowhere land and actually say, I am anti-racist. And so this leads us to the other question I wanted to talk about today. Um, some people will know from the, the, the TV series, The Watchmen, that uh, where reparations were depicted uh, fictionally in that story as having happened several administrations ago. And also Richard Nixon remain, gets reelected. I mean, there's other things that happen. Spoiler alert, sorry. Um, but that was, that's sort of the, the backstory of The Watchmen. And reparations and uh, white supremacy are major themes in, in, mm. that, in that series. And in fact, what happens, at, and this is a spoiler, spoiler alert, but there is um, basically, uh, it leads to another civil war um, because the United States gave reparations to descendants of enslaved people. And then that caused a white supremacy backlash in the country. And so I wonder, you know, so I personally support reparations. I absolutely, as a, as a healer, right. as a healer, I believe that institutionally there are things, you know, it's, it's not enough sometimes to just say, well, we had a good therapy session and we talked about everything and everything's better. It's not enough. Sometimes we have to act as a social worker. We know this. We have to say, well, okay, so what kind of environment are you going home to? Um, right. Who, who controls the money? in this family? Um, are, are, you, are we changing the power dynamics of the, the, the things that led to the trauma 
Mm-hmm. Are we substantially intervening from a health perspective as, as health providers like we are? And so that's just part of our care for people as we intervene at the structural level. So reparations make sense to me, but I also understand the fear that may be out there. What's your sense about that? Is, 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 do, do you have any fear? Because there's, there's also this, whether it's a trope or a theme of black people asking for too much, what, what I've heard from some of my black friends. Right. Is that the, the fear is they want to pass. In other words, they want to they want to fit in as white or they want to basically not rock the boat. And they don't want to ask for too much. They don't want to be seen as as demanding anything from white people. Right. Yeah. And I think it goes back to <clears throat> that point where I said um, black people just want to be left alone. Yeah. I don't know even if there was these uh, reparations, like how much do you think you can pay them? How much would be enough? It's a good question, right? It's a a difficult question. There is nothing. I mean, you can never say there is enough when you actually had people die on those boats, on those ships, bringing them here. People who used to die here, people who used to sell, these were human beings. You're literally selling them as mm. goods. Mm. Like, how much can you pay them? I know. It almost sounds like you're saying that the, this, the, that the really, can you, can you solve a spiritual problem with a monetary right. solution? Yeah, you know, it's a very good question. And, and yet at the same time, it seems like this, if, even if it's symbolic, I think those you know, words mean things. When, when you mentioned the legislation that the Congress in Uganda had right. passed, the, the words matter. So the way our constitution is written matters. The way the laws are interpreted matter. The way, um, you know, signs are either put up or not put up in this country um, during, uh, in Jim, during Jim Crow that mattered. It sent a message to people. And, and the, words, the words of our leader, of course, saying that they're not going to um, condemn white supremacy, that matters. So I just wonder, you know, even in Ger- Germany, I, others can speak to this more than I could about the history of Germany post-Holocaust, post-World War II. But my understanding is that there was fairly swift regime change in government, and that government uh, enacted reforms that were... Um, Radical, radically reparative in some way that they institutionalized uh, some sort of payments and and um. yes, yeah, there were payments and <clears throat> there was uh, reintegration and uh, somehow communities started coming back together, right. um, <clears throat> and that's totally understandable. I, I think here what the that systematic racism is still what is haunting people. When you look at the income inequalities, if the African-Americans were also given a chance to get out and work and be, you know, go to banks, be able to be eligible to go to the banks and get you know, loans or... Um, yeah, I'll give, let me just give you just a little bit of my example. So I graduate um, 
grad school with my master's in social work, I was in the military and I was, um, I had other, you know, students that I was going with who were all in the same class. We all graduated together with a master's in social work, same school. We submitted in our applications for commissioning. They got commissioned. I did not. I did not. For some reason, this person looked at my name and was like, oh, no, Um, your bachelor's degree is from Africa, so we really cannot commission you. So you've experienced this. Yes. Yeah, so then, so, so then they tell me, oh, maybe if you can wait until you get your license, then we don't have to think or consider your bachelor's. I'm like, but how did I end up in grad school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How mm-hmm. did I just magically end up in grad school? Right. And right. so that eventually robbed me because you you know this once you you finish that that degree in order to get a license you have to spend two years doing internship and then you have to you know apply to take the test right those are two and a half years how much money did i lose right and it it strikes me that the fact is you weren't given like the because it doesn't sound like you were given, you, you were not engaged in a conversation. They could ask a straightforward question, say, tell us about your training in Africa. Tell us about your, the university you went to in Africa. There was no need for that because I already had the transcripts that were evaluated. I see. I see. So even, okay, I see. I see. So, so there, it, was, it was very blatant in that case. It was just blatant. Right. Yeah. Right. And so they robbed me of the three years of, and I was pissed off. And that's yeah. actually how I ended up going back to school. And I decided, wow. you know what? Let me do a doctorate. Let me go back to school and get my doctorate. And just, right, right. You know. I, I want to I stay with the kind of a thorny part of this uh, discussion. If, if, you're, if you can give me some feedback on this. Because um, as a white person mm. um, who has... Um, experience sometimes uh, a, a person of color saying to them um, directly that mm. you you know I've I've somehow experienced your privilege like I you know I in other words when you're called out when a person is called out I have this thing by the way I, and and you'll have to tell me how this actually sounds because I I worry that it sounds like a white guy saying he doesn't want to really do the hard work right oh, and, okay. and and it could actually be that but um, you know when somebody says you know, you have experienced this as white privilege. Um, and I want to sort of say, well, I'm, you know, this is sort of, I'm feeling kind of called out. I'm missing something from you. Can you call me into, what is it you are wanting me to, to, um, f- to, to experience with you mm. as opposed to just saying, well, you're just using your white privilege, right? I think we can throw around people. And I, I see this happening and I, and I, I'm afraid that if the, if the discussion only stays at this sort of confrontational level Mm. um, where somebody says, well, that's racism and that's racism and you're being racist. And it's a lot of, a lot of this um, cancel culture type of thing and then canceling the cancel culture. And then it's like, we're just getting into like, we are doing it. We can do it to the, we can, you know, fighting fire with fire. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It just leads to more fire. It does. (laughs) 
<laughs> and th- th- those are the judgmental human instincts that we all have based right. on um, our experiences. Um, right. Definitely when someone looks at you and, and you're talking to them, automatically they'll be like, oh, okay, he's already okay. Like, what is it that he, you know? Right, right. And, and sometimes I, 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 I'll, I'll acknowledge this and this is a place to be vulnerable. Um, sometimes I will have... Um, like, like when I, I used to work in, in California and I used to have um, Silicon Valley uh, white people coming to my office. I'm like, okay, automatically I'm thinking, you are rich. You have everything. What are you looking for? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's that judgment. <laughs> wow. Do you mean to say that that, yes. that, that, that you have felt that sometimes you would judge yourself as though you don't have something to offer a person of that, of that value, quote unquote. Yes. Of that part. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, what is it that you're looking for? Like, what is it that I can offer you mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. as Moses? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good question. Right. <laughs> hopefully what you, is it that I can offer you? Hopefully you but found the answer. Yeah, the, the more you kind of relax and yeah. sit yeah. and take away, put away all that crazy, you know, judgmental stance and just be in the moment and listen to this person. Right. You get to know where they're coming from. And most times it's not pretty. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not about the money. It's not about all that. It just comes to how this person is feeling. Right, right. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, my wife said something very helpful to me that, you know, the, because we have this reaction, I think it's visceral and I think we need to name this as therapists and people who work with trauma that, that when, when we are, if we're a white person or if we're a, 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 anybody who's being... Um, who is being called out, let's say, or, or being mm. told that they're acting inappropriately. Let's, let's just leave it at that. Right. Um, there is, there's a natural defense mechanism, right? Our bodies will, will feel some adrenaline. We may feel heat in our face. We may feel yeah. our hands, either more sensation. Yes. All of that sick in our stomach. So that is the feeling of fear. Yep. And and or potentially shame, but it's it, it's it's the fight or flight response, fight or flight the of, yeah, or dorsal bagel, right? Yeah. Uh, the freeze response, and so you know, Brene Brown talks a lot about this. Um, how to you know, there's lots of lots of resources out there for people to re, to recognize what what a shame spiral looks like, mm, um, mm. because the, just chemically it lasts for oftentimes hours. Uh, or days that, that yeah. once we have had that humiliating feeling or the fear of humiliation, um, it takes a while to recover. And there are very predictable things that we do, which is namely we, we stop listening. Right, right. Um, and we will get typically get defensive or kind of freeze, as you point out, we'll just sort of like shut down or deny. Yes. Like, no, that didn't happen. No, or just not call the person back who's like, they really need to deal with this because they feel offended and, and you're, right. just go, you're in a freeze response. So very typical. And all, my wife said to me, um, she said, look, um, you know, this, is, this isn't about finding an answer in any particular case. If somebody feels like you have... Um, they experienced your privilege or they experienced some racism um, in a way that hurt them. Um, 
this isn't about finding an answer for every everyone's or all of your interactions with people. This is just about right. like asking a question, what could this person have felt? Right. That's all. And then it made it much simpler. It's like, oh, my job is not to be right. My job is not to have the answer. It's just like, what can I learn? Right. And what is this person, um, what do they need? Right. Um, so anyway, that, that helped me relax. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I, I think we all we usually made it clear uh, <clears throat> to our patients that we are actually not providing answers. We really don't have the answers, but they actually do have the answers with them. Our job is just kind of give them a different perspective and just help them to figure out um, yeah. answers to their questions. And so if, if we stop putting in our own input and injecting our own feelings and our own um, whatever um, theories, then we will let this, the healing process actually flow so smoothly because then that person will feel they are very invested and they are finding out answers on their own. Yeah, yeah. Just being able to say not knowing and being uncertain is okay. Yeah, that is okay. It just it's like it's like fertilizer. It gives it gives space to grow. Um, uh, So yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot of things. Um, Mm. I guess you know, are there things that you think people should know about practices? Uh, Certainly, people out there who are not therapists, they're they're business people, they're professionals, they're medical professionals, they're leaders, entrepreneurs, people. Um, with with um, authority and, and and you know power uh, to influence other people in their positions. What are the things you think that we can do as leaders, and what should leaders be doing? I know Kendi makes the point of saying, look, you know the the racial diversity statements, which were made uh, very popularly in the 1980s in corporate America HR boardrooms. Um, he, he's actually quite. Uh, um, he has a kind of visceral response. I heard him say, they should be torn up. He just says, they should be torn up and replaced with statements that are specific and say, um, here's what a racist thought is. Here's what a racist behavior and action is. And here's how we're defining it in our corporate handbook. And here's what an anti-racist thought is. Here's what an anti-racist behavior. We expect to see this and we do not expect to see this. And here's what's going to happen if we see this. Right. Anti, if we see racist behavior. Um, what do you think people need to hear in, in, their, in positions of leadership um, about being, if we want to use the word anti-racist, but being a, a, a change maker? I, I, that's why we need more diversity trainings. Yeah. We need these diversity trainings um, in these corporations, in um, because now we are just talking um, on a micro level, uh, those diversity trainings need to be happening on the macro level because that's where big things happen. That's where mm. change happens. Right. Um, so, like me, maybe maybe all everyone. If you're going to be a member of Congress or the House of Representatives, yes, re, re, you must go through this basic training, right? The basic training, <laughs> that basic training, and just 
put away your own judgmental stances and just bring yourself, just bring your open heart in this training, acknowledging that things have not been good, but something good can come out of this training and you bringing yourself in it wholeheartedly coming in and being vulnerable. Good things come out of our vulnerabilities as long as we acknowledge them. Yeah. It's well said, Moses. Uh, We, we see, I'm grateful to see education curriculums in early education, um, in, in even like pre-K and K, like the way developmental psychology has, has been adopted. And, and then, you know, even my kids are coming back saying, you know, their, their health classes are talking about emotions and they're talking about how the brain works and how yes. stress, the stress response. And this, <laughs> you know, it's so good to hear that because, you know, like you said so many times, like it starts at the very beginning. At the right? very beginning. My kids come home and they start meditation. I'm like, this is good. They need yes. meditation exercises at home. That's fantastic. Yeah, it is fantastic. <laughs> it's great. Well, I'm, I, it's such a, a great pleasure to speak with you and, and see you. And I, I, I hope that people um, get something from this and share it with others and, and let us know how they have been impacted by this uh, conversation today. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.